0: Hey listeners, people often ask me how they can return the favor for all the free content that I provide, and I really appreciate that. So here's a few simple and free ways you can help. The first thing is to share the show on social media like Facebook and Twitter, which is really important in helping the show reach new people, and I'm super grateful when you guys do it. Second, give the show a rating and a review on iTunes that really helps us out with the algorithm and boosts visibility. And finally, click through the Amazon banner ad at richroll.com for all your Amazon purchases. It doesn't cost you anything, but Amazon commissions us, and that is a huge help. So that's it. Thanks so much, and on to the show. I mean, I think that that we're all living at a really special
1: moment in history, and I think we have the ability to look at the impact we're having on the world, and we have the ability to be a part of the kind of world we want to have, or, or to be a part of the destruction that we say we're against.
0: That's filmmaker Andrew Morgan, and this is The Rich Roll Podcast. The Rich Roll Podcast. Greetings, everybody. Welcome. My name is Rich Roll. I'm your host. Welcome to the Rich Roll Podcast, the show where each week I sit down with all kinds of wildly inspiring and provocative personalities across a wide spectrum of topics that all sort of pivot on this theme of positive living, this theme of connecting with, accessing, unlocking, and ultimately fully expressing your best, most authentic self. So, I have a really great show for you guys today. Very excited about it. And I thought I would kick it off with a little anecdote, a little story that ends with a question. Uh, So when I was young, I turned 50 this year, so I'm dating myself, but when I was young, going shopping for new clothes was like a treat. It was special. Uh, It was infrequent. Maybe you did it uh, back to school in the fall or perhaps one time before summer starts. But today, it seems like this is something that goes on every weekend, 52 weeks out of the year. Go to any mall and it's almost like stores are giving this stuff away. You can get jeans for $10, you can get t-shirts for four bucks. You can literally fill a closet in certain stores for under $100. Everything is so incredibly cheap all of a sudden. And you can't help but wonder, how is this possible? I mean, what exactly? is going on here. So today we're gonna unpack this issue. And I really think that it's gonna blow your mind. Today's guest is Andrew Morgan. He is the young filmmaker behind a beautiful and heartbreaking and dare I say, important quote marks, documentary entitled The True Cost. It premiered at Cannes and it's a film about clothing. It's about the clothes we wear, it's about the people who make them, and the impact that this industry, the fashion industry is having on our world. And I got a whole bunch of things, all kinds of things, important foundational things I wanna say about Andrew and his movie before we get into the interview. But first. We're brought to you today by recovery.com. You are listening to this podcast because you care about improving your health and your well-being. But this quest is incomplete if you have yet to add my friend Dr. Rangan Chatterjee's Feel Better, Live More podcast into your listening quiver. An RRP favorite and someone I'm personally quick to call when I'm in need of good advice. So today we're gonna pull back the curtain on what is really the untold story of fashion. And we're gonna do that through my conversation with Andrew and a discussion about his new movie, The True Cost, which zeroes in on the profound ramifications of our addiction to something called fast fashion. Fast fashion is the sort of industry term used to describe the increasingly rapid pace at which fashion houses push new trends at deflated prices with one singular goal, the goal of getting consumers to buy as many garments as possible, as frequently as possible, to really prime the addiction pump of more, 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 and the resulting low-quality, high-volume escalation of the manufacturing and distribution of incredibly inexpensive, cheaply made, and essentially disposable clothing. So, simply put... The explosion of fast fashion and its intersection with the rise of the global economy and global supply chain has resulted in this $3 trillion industry that is nonetheless and really quite grimly responsible for the severe exploitation of workers across the world. Human rights violations galore, untold, profound, and perhaps in some cases irreversible environmental calamities. And of course, uh, it goes without saying the horrible abuse and slaughter of billions of animals. That being said, the true cost really isn't a good guy, bad guy expose narrative. Rather, it's a very well-considered and sensitized and human look at what is really going on. Not for the purpose of shaming others or pointing fingers, but really to help all of us ask ourselves better questions. Questions like, do I really need this? Who made this and how was it made? What exactly went into this thing getting from you know, wherever to here? In other words, what is the true cost of our daily, often subconsciously or unconsciously motivated consumer choices? So these are subjects I've delved into in the past on this show, most notably with men's fashion wear entrepreneur and Parsons School of Design professor, Joshua Katcher. We did that interview back in March of 2015, I think, RRP 135, 100 episodes ago. So if you enjoyed that conversation, which I know you did because Joshua is amazing, then I think you'll really dig this. In any event, Andrew is just an incredibly thoughtful, articulate, and passionate young guy. Amazingly, the father of four kids. I don't know how he's done that at his age. He's very young. Uh, And he's just really committed to doing great work that makes a difference. And how cool is that? Uh, He made a beautifully photographed and quite stirring movie. I really suggest everybody check it out. It's streaming on Netflix and you can find that in most global territories. Alternatively, uh, it's available on iTunes, Amazon, uh, and at truecostmovie.com anywhere in the world. So it was a real treat to go deep with Andrew on this subject. And I think it's a subject that we all need to be thinking about and talking about and acting on more intently. So with that said, should we talk to Andrew now? Let's talk to Andrew. Thanks so much for coming up to the house, man. It's great to be here. Yeah, I really appreciate you uh, making the journey up to the hinterlands and super excited to talk to you today. Uh, Really impacted by your movie and just as a little bit of kind of backdrop uh, I think it was a couple months ago that you had the screening at Industry of All Nations. I couldn't go, unfortunately. Sorry about that. <laughs> I can't remember what I was doing, but I, I had some kind of conflict. And Julie went, and she came back from that evening just so moved and impacted by not only your movie, but your presentation. And there were some other folks there too, right? Mm-hmm. Was Vandana Shiva there and, and uh, maybe, I don't know, one or two other people. There's a couple from Patagonia there as well then. Right, I? right, right. And she she was just out of her mind. And she's like, you got to watch this movie. This is so incredible. You got to get Andrew on the podcast. And so of course I immediately watched it and, uh, it really is quite, uh, a magnificent work. So congrats on, on that. And I'm looking forward to getting into, getting into it. Uh, but I think it's fair to say just at the outset that although of course it is about fashion and in particular fast fashion, it's really, uh, it's really a documentary about so much more than that. It's about consumerism. It's about uh, you know, the globalization of capitalism. It's about marketing. Uh, it's about uh, you know, how we behave as human beings. It's mm. about psychology. Uh, it's about human rights. It's about the environment. Like you're tackling a lot. You bit, <laughs> bit off a lot in this movie, um, but you handled it masterfully and beautifully. And uh, it's incredibly impactful. Mm. Thank you so much. That means a lot. Yeah, so let's unpack it a little bit. Why don't you just sort of explain what the movie is about, and we can kind of go from there.
1: Yeah, well, the the film is about the impact of clothing um, on on both people and the planet, and I had never, uh, you know, ever in my life really stopped to think about where my clothes came from, and I had this experience uh, a couple years ago when I was getting coffee one morning and I looked down at the cover of the New York Times, and there was this photograph of these two boys um, that were ironically similar in ages to my own two boys at home. And these two boys were standing in front of this huge wall of missing person signs. And I picked up the paper and read about this clothing factory collapse um, just outside of Dhaka, Bangladesh, and read that at the time of the collapse it was making you know clothing for major Western brands, and it listed some of the brands. They were brands that I knew and had frequented and uh you know the the estimates started in the hundreds it it then crossed over a thousand uh people that had lost their lives in this this you know horrific um incident and what i remember standing there thinking about that morning was you know first how is it possible that an industry this powerful and profitable could be doing business in a way that was leading to this kind of loss and lessening of life and as i read in the article multiple times over these incidents were not rare um and then on a really personal level i just remember thinking how is it possible i've never thought about where my clothes come from Mm -hmm. and that just kind of opened this door and asked some really profound questions that i had never asked before and led us into uh, a journey that took us around the world into the lives of people working in different parts of these supply chains, and also really, you know, looking at the unmeasured uh, impact to natural resources and the environment, all stemming from
0: something as simple as the clothes we wear. Right. It's it's uh it's very interesting uh, because clothes are something that we all need right so you can't just say well i'm not going to participate in this business whatsoever we all have to you know (laughs) it's encouraged yeah (laughs) and there are so many uh analogies to the food system like i can't i couldn't help but think throughout the movie like oh that's very similar with big food and the way big food operates like a lot of parallels and overlap in that kind of venn diagram um because we all have to eat food Mm. as well uh, and the, the movie really forces us as, as not only audience members, but as consumers to think more deeply about the choices that we make and the impact, you know, throughout all the way down that supply chain that those decisions have on, you know, not just ourselves, but, you know, the world at large.
1: Yeah. And I think that was my experience making the film uh, was that it went from being a film about clothing to really a film about understanding um, my place in the world and the connection between my choices and people 's lives or the well being of this planet, and that sounds really grandiose, but I think at the heart of the the film is this we 're really attacking a narrative that 's been told and sold to us to see ourselves as uh, first and foremost consumers and The more I looked at the world and you know we traveled and, and were in all these we, 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 we you know, saw all sorts of toxic, terrible things. But at the heart of it was the, the most dangerous thing really kept coming back to this story where people living, especially in the developed world, have been taught to see themselves as just sort of bystanders, you know, as, mm-hmm. as, as consumer. I mean, the word consumer is like my value is just to be someone who takes in stuff. And it sort of safely divorces me from the impact of those choices. And it's one of those things, and I hope people get this experience in the film, my, my experience making it was like, It's one of those things where when you pull back one layer of that story, it starts to erode. And what it opens up is a far more meaningful invitation to be a part of something bigger in the world. And that sounds huge when I'm just talking about clothing, but it, 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 I think, is one of the primary um, gateways to the world around us.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, clothing speaks to identity in a really profound way. Mm. And you know, I don't think there's anything inherently wrong with wanting to be fashionable or express yourself through the clothing that you wear. I mean, that's a very mm. human thing to do. It's very personal, it's very emotional. Um, but this idea of uh, this this journey, really, that you went on, which kind of sounds like the narrative from The Matrix. It's like you, you start out as this battery, you know, <laughs> where you're empowering and empowering this system to stepping outside of it and getting a broader perspective on how it all functions and, you know, sort of the revelations that, that come with that are, are powerful.
1: Well, and there is, I mean, as you say, one of the things that we were careful to do in the film is, um, not to demonize fashion. You know, fashion is a creative art form. I mean, it's a, yeah, it's self-expression, it's heritage and history and culture. And, um, it's just recently been swallowed up by a, a, a very, um, Big business version of something that's intrinsically beautiful, mm-hmm. um, and I think that's that's the part that I'm I'm really focused on. And that's the part that's brought with it, you know, just a whole lot of unseen negative impacts.
0: Well, I think it it, it would be good to kind of break down this evolution of the fashion industry since 1960 because it's really exploded and morphed and changed in a, in a in a way that has, you know, impacted not only the environment and the economy but human rights in in, in a palpable way.
1: Yeah, it's, a you know, like all things in history, it's a combination of a lot of factors. But uh, if you go back to 1960, we were still making in this country, the United States, we were still making uh, more than 97% of our clothing here, you know, in America. Um, Fast forward to today, that number is less than 2%. So what you've seen just like
0: Huge, hold on a second.
1: Huge, like insane. <laughs> Ninety-seven to two percent. It's really been the flagship of globalized production and globalization as a whole. You know, and it has. You know, that level of outsourcing has made way for um, it to become a deflationary product, which is one mm-hmm. of the only things in the global marketplace that's gotten cheaper over time. And you know, as uh, when I began to look at this, I, I kind of began to ask those questions like okay, but raw materials haven't gotten cheaper and transportation hasn't gotten by and large cheaper. Um, And what you quickly begin to see is that human labor uh, is a point in the process where you can squeeze and so is externalizing uh, the polluting and and environmental impact. Mm -hmm. So we we give birth to this thing called fast fashion, which is uh, just this acceleration of production, cheap low level production and on our end of the spectrum consumption. Um, you know, we, as a world consume more than 400% more clothing than we than we did 2 decades ago. Yeah, that's crazy. And that's I mean you you think about that and it's you you begin to ask, you know, the next set of questions, where does it go? You know, where wh- what happens when we don't hold. You
0: know, all of those things kind of kept propelling the, mm-hmm. the story forward. Yeah, and you follow all those threads, you know, throughout the movie. But it is insane. I mean, I'm a little bit older than you, but you know, I remember as a kid like if you were going to go get a new pair of sneakers or a shirt or it was like wasn't a big deal but it was like okay like this is kind of an event and now it's just it just seems like everything's free you know i mean not i mean in a in a sliding scale kind of way by comparison it's incredible what you can get for very little money when you go to the mall and so uh we tend to just do it reflexively we don't think about it and there are very powerful systems set up to prevent us from really considering that because the marketing is so flashy and it's all about, you know, kind of conveying this idea that you're going to step into this aspirational lifestyle if you buy this product. And to bring it back to the the analogy with with our food systems, you know, so much of our food systems are produced in the United States. So in order to create that, you know, kind of Wall to prevent us from seeing it, we've had to enact regulatory (laughs) actions Mm. by way of ag-gag laws to really prevent us from seeing it. But because through, you know, the globalization of capitalism, our clothes are made so far away that we don't really need the ag-gag laws because it's just, it's so, it's out of sight, out of mind. We don't have to look about, maybe in the back of our mind, we kind of know, yeah, this probably isn't right. Mm. You know, this is Mm. just too cheap, but it's too tempting to not buy it.
1: Well, I, that's, that's really profound, and I think uh, even when you look at, you know, we put into place really good things here in our country, like the Clean Water Act and some of these different initiatives that from a production standpoint made it that much easier to, as you say, have it be done in places where we don't have to look at the impact. Um, it just so happens that we're doing so much of it, and it's growing at such a scale that it's beginning to take a burden. Uh, planetarily, it's beginning to take a burden that's that's undeniable at this point. And it's opening up the space for uh, a bigger conversation about human rights. But you're right. You have to go look for this stuff. And it was my experience that you, it, it wasn't just a search. It was like excavating. Like It, it mm-hmm. took so, it's, an, it's an, an unbelievable thing how separated, how safely separated we, we can
0: let ourselves be from where things mm-hmm. actually come from. So 80 billion uh, items of new clothes are produced a year. That's a 400% increase from like 20 Mm -hmm. years ago, right? That's right. And a lot of these clothes uh, are actually manufactured so that they don't last like (laughs) purposefully, right? Mm -hmm. Is that correct?
1: Yeah, it is. I mean, the fast fashion business model is basically, you know, trying to get something that you had and held on to for a long time uh, to transition in one really one lifetime or one generation into a commodity that we view as a disposable good mm-hmm. uh, and that's a phenomenal thing so yes number one you're going to make it so cheap that it doesn't hit a certain thoughtfulness threshold when I'm purchasing it and then also it doesn't last and and I I began to look at my own wardrobe and ask these questions and and sure enough I realized I was I was buying into that like I was I was purchasing a lot of cheap things that felt great at the checkout that really were falling apart at the end of the season, the end of the year. It was Mm -hmm. was almost like clockwork. They just, a few washes in, fundamentally begin to deteriorate.
0: Right, and there's a couple sort of ramifications of that. The first of which is, I think you say that each, uh, every person on average produces 82 pounds of Mm -hmm. textile waste per year, 82 pounds for every person. And that amounts to 11 million tons of textile waste. From the U.S. Oh, well, alone, right. oh, that's U.S. alone. Yeah,
1: and what's amazing about that is when you think about that waste, that waste is um, is is oftentimes toxic waste, and and that's a whole other you know health side of the consideration. But actually, when you're in the the trimmings are cut off of the finished pieces that are going to you in the factory, they they would get. I would watch them be put in hazardous waste. Um, so there's chemicals in the product, you know, by mm-hmm. nature. It's also we're making a lot of synthetic clothing so that's that's plastics that's you know petroleum based and so a lot of that stuff does not break down like that this is not a case of you know throw it in a landfill and in a couple of decades this stuff will just biodegrade it's quite the opposite to that and those dyes that material um is is just having a profound impact and the the really dark irony to that is a lot of this waste comes from the production side, so it's in these developing countries. So I spent time walking through landfills in countries all over the world where clothing waste stretches out as far as the eye can see. Some consumer, mostly production, like the excess cutaways. Um, and that, yeah, that, that just has a
0: profound, uncounted cost. Yeah, you have these scenes in the movie where they're literally just mountains of textile waste. They're like giant hills of just yeah. black like wasting away toxic materials where was that mostly in bangladesh or that or was, was in that
1: bangladesh played? that was also in uh india and that was also in uh cambodia
0: right and you have you see the pollution going into the ganges in that one town where they they're known for their leather production right like one of the number one places in the world for yeah
1: in Kampur, india yeah, exactly Kampore. And that's—I mean—that's a—that's a serious issue where these, you know, major, major, major companies, uh, multinational brands, who are are hugely funded, and they—they they have the research. They're very—they're very aware, and they're sourcing from communities and pockets of the world that just do that physically do not have the technological, um, not just know-how, but you know, equipment to deal with these very toxic production processes and safe ways. And Mm -hmm. so you're seeing, you know, open waste, you know, in that case that you mentioned from leather tanning factories pour into a river that supports life for, you know, Countless people right. all through India
0: And juxtaposed against uh, You know you have all these this footage From all these different commercials but there's that one For Joseph A. Banks Where the woman <laughs> is sort of satirically You know making the point that these, these suits are so cheap she's like wiping Her countertop with wiping <laughs> up A mess and then just you know disposing of it You know the, a whole suit like a business suit <laughs> Into the garbage you know Like this idea this marketing Idea is is fueling this concept that we're constantly needing to renew our wardrobe and i think there's i can't remember who it was in the movie but there was one woman from the fashion industry who said you know it used to be two seasons a year now it's 52 seasons
1: yeah i mean you walk into one of these these major fast fashion um you know stores and you will see a new piece of a new a whole new set of clothes every single week and in some cases now every single day um i was literally just in europe a few days ago and i went into a store the day after i had been in it and there was a whole new story know, <laughs> it's like the, the and pace what are they doing with amazing. everything
0: that doesn't sell that's a
1: huge question and there's been new york times ran an incredible story a few years ago about um clothing out back of one of these major retailers being, uh, cut up, like actually finding shredded bags of these clothes that weren't going out the front door. That's a huge question that Mm -hmm. that has yet to be really answered. So, so we don't even know. basically. No. And there's a lot of stories of, you know, these are not new stories of, of piles of clothing being burned, even at the factory level. Uh, this goes back a long way, even, you know, luxury products, handbags, you know, last year's models are just being incinerated. I mean, it's, it's, it's a fundamental question that you'll never unask once you ask it. When you walk into any common goods store, you mm. say, "Well, what happened to what
0: happened to last month's or what happened to last week's? Like, right. did it all perfectly sell out?" You know. So what? When? When? I know that like the kind of inception point for the movie was when you you know saw this piece in the New York Times or this about this tragedy. When did you know that this, there was a movie here that you were going to actually do something?
1: Very quickly. I mean, this was a pretty. Yeah, it was a pretty special process. I brought that article
0: back to my producer
1: that morning. Um, we had just finished our, our previous film that week, so. What was your
0: previous film?
1: Um, it, was a, it was actually the first documentary I ever did. I, I lost my dad in a tragic uh, cycling accident, yeah. and I was sort of thrust into this world of loss and uh, with no guide, and I, I, I just didn't know how to navigate it. So what I ended up doing was making a film where I basically went and spent time with people all over the country who had experienced some form of loss, and and um, yeah, it, w- it was a life changing process. And and honestly, it's funny you ask me that because I think honestly, the process of making that film sort of had both my producer and I in a very open, very sensitive place. That I think is part of why that article jumped out at me. Mm-hmm. I think I was just in that You're spot. Raw. Yeah. Um. So we we had the conversation about that article that day. We followed the Rana Plaza factory collapse story in the news cycle for the next couple days and by the end of the week um, we knew it was a film that we were going to make we couldn't believe this story hadn't been told and we didn't know how we were going to do it but i i think it was just within days that it mm-hmm. was pretty clear.
0: And so how long before you jumped on a plane and actually went to Bangladesh? <laughs> <laughs> well, we started, I picked up the Kickstarter, right? Uh, we did, uh, I, and I and I and the first thing I did
1: in, in that first week was I picked up the phone and I started calling people that worked in different parts of the fashion industry all over the world and introduced myself and just said, you know, I'm following the story. Everyone was following the story that week. And I said, I'm, I'm a filmmaker and I, I'm really interested in telling the story. Um, can you give me some insight from your perspective? And so I talked to, you know, everywhere from activists to, um, you know, scientists. Like, I just really, I built some relationships, some of which actually are people that are ended up being featured in the film and Mm -hmm. even came on as producers. And I started by asking if I could come uh, speak with them and and interview them. And we cut a little short video together, which became the Kickstarter and uh, more than 900 people uh, mostly strangers all over the world, uh, contributed to that Mm. Kickstarter campaign. And that allowed us to buy our tickets to Bangladesh and start. And we, we continued to, you know, it was one of those projects where we would, we would get enough for the next trip and the next trip, but that was, that was the beginning.
0: Right. Very cool. Um, and so, uh, from there, how does it, I mean, is it, did you have a global sense of, the arc of the movie, or were you just sort of doing your investigative journal? Like, you go to Bangladesh, you meet a guy, and you're like, "Oh, you got to talk to this guy now." You got to. How did it kind of unfold? It was. It was.
1: Yeah, it was kind of. It was twofold. It was on one sense. I knew right away that I wanted this to be a global story. Like when I, when I started looking into this, I felt like it was really very, very important that this not be a Bangladesh film because mm-hmm. if it was a Bangladesh film, it could be about those people over there, and here we are over here. I, I instantly thought we need to shoot in countries all over the world. To really not only capture the story fairly, but also to to make it a film where you lose track of where you are at some point and it just becomes about our story and so I had that going in what i didn 't have going in uh, was this sense of unraveling ideas, and sometimes it was like you need to talk to this person over there, but more than that, it was someone would uncover a truth or a story or something that just sort of um, caught us off guard and it begged the next question. And so we would go ask that question. So the film begins to be this kind of collage of, of people and places and ideas. And that unfolding nature was really my education. Like it was really me not knowing anything about economics, me Mm -hmm. not understanding, you know, environmental. Yeah. So that just kind of unfolded in a really, in a really profound way that in a lot of ways, my experience making the film Really, more than anything else I've done was was what I was trying to put into the experience for the viewer. Because I I had this experience that was like very very unlike anything I'd done before. Where in in the same weeks I would be, you know, going back and forth between some of the most beautiful uh, fashion runways, at some of the you know gorgeous cities. I would be in these circles of you know very powerful wealthy people and then that same week I'd be in a slum or I'd be and that sort of that sense of whiplash that sense of emotional that kind of began to form what became the yeah
0: that that juxtaposition I really think you know hammers home how powerful this is and and the and the complete disconnect between these two worlds that are inextricably linked Mm -hmm. right to see this beautiful footage of these you know gorgeous models on the runway and the fabulousness of it all slammed up against you know what that you know toxic waste dump looks like mm-hmm. or the you know the the runoff into the Ganges or whatever like that's the reality of what creates the other you know mm-hmm. and to have those slammed up against each other in the way that you did <clears throat> is powerful and you know, I think it needs to be said. Your cinematography is beautiful. Like even mm. when you're in the most desperate conditions, like the film work is really, mm, is thank really you. well done. Yeah, thanks. So, um,
1: so well, and what? And honestly, just to just do that point, Rich. Like one of the interesting things was that this was a film that you we didn't have to really heighten anything, and so everything from the cinematography, like all the choices that we made artistically like when you say putting those two images side by side it's like that's all it took like right. this isn't like Sarah McLaughlin's not singing a sad song with slow motion it just we're just saying look at these two parts of something that make this whole
0: there is so much health information out there it can feel overwhelming and leave even the most well-intentioned confused about what's what and who to trust I'm super proud to announce Well, I couldn't help but think that there was a lot of conscious thought put into the tone. Like, the tone is very important of this movie because it could very easily venture into this big guilt trip that's going to make everyone who watches it feel bad. Or it could be, you know, a preachy movie, you know, that would anger people. Um, Certainly, I think it, you know, it's aided by the fact that you insert your story into it. Like, the movie begins with you trying to answer this question for yourself, Mm -hmm. right? But it's not like a Michael Moore movie where you're the focus of the attention. Mm -hmm. Like you let these subjects and the people that you're speaking to let that story unfold um, for you. But uh, it's very clear that this movie is not about making you feel bad. It's inciting. It's Mm -hmm. hopefully inciting you to think more deeply and to perhaps make more conscious choices, but not to guilt you into making you feel like you're (laughs) a bad human being. So what was the process of of you know coming up with you know walking that tight rope and and crafting that balance
1: well i think for me it's just it's it's been a process of trying to understand where we are at at this moment in history and i think where i believe a lot of people are is more aware of some of the profound issues facing humanity than at most other points in our history, actually. I think a lot of people are beginning to be very aware of some huge challenges and unfinished work and systemic injustices that still are, are rooted in our world. So I don't think you have to hit people over the head with something's wrong. I think what people are looking for is an invitation to be a part of a more meaningful life in a, in a more um, beautiful, just world. And I think I, from the beginning, this this issue of transitioning out of just being a bystander to being a participant to with, you know, in, in my relationship my wife, my children, like beginning to think about the things that were coming into our home in a more thoughtful way, it was enriching my life. Like it was actually making... It was connecting these things that I care about on a big picture level over here to some very immediate choices I was making. And that's that's what I wanted for for other people. And I think I think that's the the moment that we're in is um, not it's not like we're at the end of awareness because there's a lot more awareness needed. But I think we're at a moment where we have the tools and the ability to make some profound change to the world around us. And and a lot of people just need an invitation. So if someone watches the film and they walk away feeling excited, um, maybe angry, but, but excited of just how much is at stake and how much their little life gets to be a part of this bigger thing that that's to me, that's what I'm after.
0: I think we are at a cultural tipping point with that kind of awareness and consciousness. And I think that's being driven by, you know, people of your generation, you're you're a card carrying millennial. Right. (laughs) And I think that, uh, you know, people of your age and, and, you know, a little bit younger, even you're 29, right? That's right. Yeah. So people, you know, in their twenties are, and i think this is being driven by the internet age you know are demanding transparency in mm. in their consumer goods and in mm. the rest of their life like it's just not acceptable because the internet fuels transparency because everything has to be transparent that's online the idea that a company would not be transparent in their you know sort of chain of processes is 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 becoming quickly and for the betterment of society like an intolerable idea right we want to know mm. and i've often said you know, we have food label. We have labels on our food that tell us, you know, the nutrients. Is it organic? Blah blah blah. All that kind of stuff. I feel like every consumer goods product should have some kind of similar label that that tells you, you know, where it was produced, how it was produced, uh, you know, the materials that were used in it. Uh, is it fair trade? You know, what are the toxins in it, and what is the carbon, you know, footprint of that product? Like, it, I feel like that should be something yeah. that every product should have. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Certainly, our clothes
1: absolutely and and i think that's the sort of common sense nature that a lot of people are are waking up to and i think you know more more broadly the idea of the true cost is really that uh we're we're continuing to externalize all the true impacts and costs of of making the goods and services that we mm-hmm. enjoy every day so that that's sort of on a one-way collision course that's just inevitably problematic you know that a company could be producing something and using ten times the the water, they could be you know polluting ten times more than another, they, and the only thing we 're counting in this system right now is profit so as long as there 's continued quarter on quarter growth, all of those other things impacts to human rights, labor, and all of the scores of of systems that our planet has carried out at great resilience up until this point that are being threatened aren't factored into that equation. They're not mm-hmm. in the boardroom. They're not at the table. They're not getting counted. And I think there's just a lot of people who maybe you know, building on the shoulders of, of, of the previous generation and work that has come before us are just standing up to say, I think it's time that we could invent uh, a better system. And I think there's a, a growing feeling of anti-inevitability like why is it that so much of the way we were taught was that we've come through all these ups and downs in human history and then we've arrived at this point where everyone and and you only have to turn on your tv or open a laptop or get a ticket and fly somewhere to realize that's not true that the world's Mm -hmm. still fundamentally in need of innovation and care and cultivation
0: and we're just getting started you know and that that's thrilling to me right And meanwhile, if you go to the website of any of these big garment companies, I'm sure there's policies, you know, they'll have a section where it tells you that everything they do is above board and all of this, right? Like, oh, we make sure that our workers are cared for and blah, blah, blah. But it's just propaganda for the
1: most part, right? Huge propaganda and huge amounts of marketing and Mm -hmm. a, a huge amount of the CSR effort has been a an effort on behalf of the companies to uh, police themselves What is CSR corporate mean? social responsibility right. uh-huh. okay. so it's really a lot of times folded into a marketing department and it is you know it stems from some of the nike sweatshop stuff when this stuff started to get documented there was a push for regulation which just means we're playing a competitive game and there have to be rules uh and their push away from that was to say no 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 the the players on the field can write their own rules. Like we can police ourselves. We don't need
0: outside oversight because we're gonna do our own and time after time again, doesn't it, work. it just, yeah. You know, How is that gonna possibly work? It's never gonna work, right? Self-policing, you know, when profit is the motive and there are 52, you know, seasons in this fashion year, it's just never gonna happen, right? And I think one of the most profound, for me, uh, sort of moments in the movie is when you have this Harvard-Stanford economist who basically says, Look, you know, we are a culture in which we've been taught to think and speak critically about all of our systems, you know, all our systems of government, et cetera, and you know, through that dialogue to hopefully craft better versions of what preceded them. Mm. But the one thing that we're not allowed to criticize is our economy, mm. our mm. capitalist economy. If you do that, you're ostracized. That's anathema, right? Mm. And so, who is to say that this um, capitalist system? As we continue to globalize doesn't need a revision especially when you know we're we're outsourcing our modes of manufacturing to these underdeveloped countries where there's no regulation no oversight no uh you know ecological you, you know stop gaps on on what's occurring you know we have a responsibility to step in as a superpower and make sure that not only these, these workers are treated fairly and given a fair living wage, but that we're not polluting our planet. Like our planet doesn't get a seat at the table mm. to speak up and say, stop doing this to me. Mm. And, you know, the UN is like ineffectual at this. Mm. It's like we almost need this global organization policing effort um, because as we continue to globalize and stuff is happening outside our borders, you know, how are we supposed to regulate that in a way that is, uh, that is humane?
1: yeah no I think there's a I think there's so much truth in that and I think one of the problems we're in that like stopgap moment where we're operating in a globalized economy but we're still operating by localized sense of governance and rules and there's a lot of gaps in that system you know what mm-hmm. I'm saying like it's not a we're not individual countries anymore we really are tied together in so many economic ways um, and the, the lack of oversight and the lack of questioning that is is profound. And part of where that comes from is if you're, you, you mentioned the word superpower, if you're the power typically and not the oppressor, then the system typically looks a little better than it is from your vantage point. So when we're only looking at some of these issues um, from from a very privileged, successful, the system worked here. Like it worked. I mean, you from World War II, like we really accumulated a vast amount of wealth. There's just another side to that coin though. And I think truly the life-changing experience of making this film, and this sounds so simple, but it was for me getting out of my context to go look at the the world through the lens of people who are on the under half. And it's not to have some faint-hearted feel-good pity, it's more to say, are we organizing our world in in the way that gives most people the best shot at some opportunity at at a sense of, at, or are we really entrenching systems of exploitation? And I think for too long the fashion industry has paraded as a champion of empowerment and really has um, has further entrenched these systems.
0: Yeah, I want to drill down on that a little bit and get into the human rights aspect of it because the 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 predominant argument is that these people, whether they're in Bangladesh or India or Malaysia or Cambodia, these people, if not for, you know, what we're providing them through our factory work would have a lesser life, like that they, w- they would have no option. We're providing them an option. And by doing that, we are helping to, you know, raise the floor on their experience. But there's a lot of problems with that argument.
1: Well, that is that is that is a very good description of the story that I certainly grew up in, and I think a lot of people listening certainly in America grew up hearing it was, and it kind of, you know, it offsets any sort of guilt. Like when you, whenever you ask that question as a kid, or, you know, well, where is this come from? Or, or is this making life better? Or is this, um, that was always, you know, as ugly as it might be, you know, buildings might be falling down, people might being, you know, it's leading ultimately to a better place for these people. And the alternative would be they'd be dying in starvation. And I think that's a really, uh, number one, I mean, that it, you don't have to be a, too much of a thinking person to feel like that just sounds, that sounds super convenient, first of all. That sounds a little bit too black and white. But also why, why not, not only is that not happening in case after case after case, not only is that proving to not follow through the trickle. Yeah. What is the reality? The trickle down from, from we're just going to produce enough and create enough wealth at the top that it's going to, in the production sense, come down to these people. Isn't bearing out. Um, When these people are able to stand up, in any way and organized to fight back for better wages what's happening is production will shift away from their country to an even lower you know ranking rung on the line the, the phrase the race there's to the bottom another,
0: there's always another country that
1: yeah works. and that's really you know in the film you see Bangladesh Bangladesh was a response to China China beginning to get some form of you know being able to ask for something a little bit more basic and humane from a wage perspective uh because again this is you know the most labor dependent industry on earth so your your people part of this equation on the labor force is astronomical we we still don't have machines making most of our clothes people actually make the things that we wear and those people are paid poverty wages they're paid less than it, cost to live in in some of the poorest slums in these communities
0: and you have that scene with the the one woman is her name Seema Shima, Shima, uh right Mm -hmm. is she the one she the she she was part she was trying to do some labor organizing or was that Mm -hmm. a different it was her right yeah yeah and uh the result of you know they were trying to kind of organize around this idea of getting a, a fair living wage and brought it to the management and the result of that was physical beatings yeah. of these people
1: right it, it's horrific and and uh yeah, Shima leads a um a union in
0: her factory which is yeah facing huge retaliation right. union, union in the the loosest definition absolutely. of the word right because it's completely powerless and ineffectual
1: absolutely and and you see that all across the world we were in um you know in nam pen cambodia you see in the film where workers stood up uh and actually went on strike you know we're out in the streets Asking for, um, I think, like a, a dollar uh, increase, you know, just this negligible increase in, in a wage, and the police were brought in and started open firing live rounds. And I went to a I went to a funeral of a garment worker that was beaten to death in those riots by um, simply standing up to ask for a wage. So I think that's one of the to, to me. So so to, to to your earlier question, first of all. Um, are they going to die of starvation or are we going to exploit them in this work? Um, one of the first questions that has to be asked to me is why are those the only two options? You know, why in an industry that's in the trillions, where profit margins can be astronomically large, why are we not organizing that supply chain system to, you know, just care for the most fundamental
0: basic human needs? That's un American, Andrew. Come on, it's anti <laughs> capitalist. Who's going to do that? I mean, yeah the, the scene in the movie at the funeral with that that man kind of breaking down is just ugh, mm-hmm. it's just it's so heart-wrenching and the scene of the uh the riot in cambodia is off the chart tr- i mean were you present for that Did i was present that footage looked like it was yeah archival, but.
1: yeah it was i was present for um the second round of protests which were which is when that um funeral took place um and there was a lot that that sparked um but this i was not there when they were shooting um we had a a really brave journalist actually who was there that shot that stuff and it was it's 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 really powerful to see because i think my experience again was it's one thing to know about these issues and i think so many times i'm guilty of being a person who can can sort of understand on paper these concepts and it's it's a life-changing difference to be in these situations and to be looking these people in the eye and to realize this is their life. You know, these are mothers and fathers. These are families. These are communities. These are people. um, Just that. They're people. They're people. Mm -hmm. And they're not just cogs in a machine. And I think that... That's jarring. I mean, that's really jarring stuff to experience. Because, yeah, in a sense, to what you're saying, that's a nat- natural, you know, inevitable part of capitalism. So, grow up, get used to it, get over it, you know. But it's like, wait, hold on a second. How how is that? Maybe I'm just not old enough to like accept that that's okay. Right.
0: The food industry analog to this issue. Uh, there's a book called Meatonomics by a guy called David Simon. I had him on the podcast, and he, he basically breaks down the economics of how. The meat and dairy industry works, and if you strip away you know all the regulations and the farm bill and all of that that a big mac would actually cost like seven dollars mm. like that's the true cost you know the mm. true cost of that product um, so if we you know bringing it back to your you know subject matter, if we were to imagine there's some kind of you know global organization that could provide valid oversight <clears throat> and we could ensure that these people have uh, you know, a good living wage, safe working conditions, you know, that we could put a cap on the toxic waste. Like, all, of the, if we could solve mm-hmm. all of those problems, what I'm sure that the garment industry will tell you, well, then our items are gonna be, you know, astronomically expensive and our profit margins will be cut down to zero and we're just we can't do it or we're just going to pull out like but what would what would that shirt at H&M suddenly cost?
1: Yeah it's that's a great question and I think one of the exciting things in the film is we follow some people who are 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 proving that this can be done in a way that is truly caring for all the hearts and hands that interact with these pieces along the way and still gets to market as at a reasonable price and um, you mentioned, you know, our, 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 shared friends at the screening, there's a growing number of companies all over the world that are building business models mm-hmm. that, that walk that line that say, you know what, we're going it, to, it's going to cost a little bit more, but, but oftentimes not that much more. And, and the transition and, and the transition that I've, I've been in the midst of is the, the, you know, there's a lot of levers of power here, but at the end of the day, if this begins to be an issue that more people buying clothes care about. You know, Stella McCartney has that great line in the film where she says, if you don't like it, don't buy into it. If more people just begin to say, you know what, I'm not okay with that. I, I actually want to know where my stuff comes. Mm-hmm. I want to have some um and I'm willing to pay just a little bit more, the exchange that we'll get is it will be better made clothing and we'll actually be able to hold on to it for a longer time. Like there is nothing sustainable about this model of fast fashion. And I'm not out to make that model make sense. I'm out to prove that that model will never make sense. But what could make sense is investing in a wardrobe that we actually love, paying a little bit more for things that we're actually gonna hold on to and wear uh, that actually benefit those people on the other end of the spectrum.
0: Yeah, that's a great point and and beautifully said. I think it has to be from the top down and the bottom up. So at the top, Mm. we need, you know, we need, Government intervention, and we need regulation, and we need global oversight, and all that sort of stuff. But at a very fundamental, you know, bottom level, uh, it's about each and every consumer, uh, you know, making better choices. And I think that there is, you know, back to the tipping point issue. There is a tipping point with this. Mm-hmm. You know, companies that you know began with Tom Shoes of looking at, you know, this idea of conscious capitalism. In uh, in a way that can you know you can create you can create great products uh, and be profitable and do it in a way that um, is gentler on the planet and more conscious with respect to you know the chain of labor that produced it and it it does feel good to patronize those companies I think at the same time you have to be more. Um, Active as a consumer in exploring, you know, who these. Yeah. Com- there's a lot of companies that are jumping on this bandwagon and giving lip service to this idea, but they're not actually practicing it, right? Yeah. So, you know, industry of all nations, where you did your screening, you know, our mutual friend Juan and his brother have created this really cool clothing line mm. where they're actually supporting these indigenous communities they're not using any toxic dyes everything is natural and they're completely transparent about you know who these people are and you you feel, when you buy their I'm wearing one of their shirts right now like you feel connected to those communities because I know like I know Juan hmm. and I know that that money actually is going towards hmm. them and so yeah their clothes are more expensive but they're gonna last longer and when I buy one I'm just buying one and like hmm. this is my shirt that I'm getting from them and it, it feels good so I think you know there is this idea that you have to live this deprivation lifestyle mm-hmm. if you're going to live more sustainably or mm-hmm. perhaps a little bit more minimally you know with mm-hmm. respect to your food choices or whatever consumer choices that you're making but i've actually found it to be quite the opposite
1: absolutely and i and i love i love how you said that and i love that sense that that top down bottom up that's what we need in the world and that's what we can all practice in our own lives too like it can be both so i can be someone who am, you know i can i can push and advocate for things you know system wide change at the top but then also i it 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 keeps me fueled to keep doing that by making choices that support those beliefs at the bottom and that's a powerful combination to me in our lives like and it's new to me but to, to say i'm going to push you know with all my energy for change at the top and i'm also gonna on the very smallest you know choices in my life for my kids for our family we're gonna be making choices that line up it is it's beautiful here you said about the shirt it's a gateway it's a it's a way of inviting me into seeing the world in a more clear way and you put on a shirt and you think about it and you it it just does something, it just matters, and it moves me out of just an invisible consumer into a partner, you know, Juan's mm-hmm. a partner, he's making something, he's helping me live a more meaningful just by being, you know, and he's doing the hard work, and I'm, I'm just, I'm helping buy into that.
0: Right, it's also empowering too, because, you know, one of the things I always say is that it's very easy for us as citizen consumers, quote unquote consumers, to feel disenfranchised and like, we can't make a difference. And I think I heard you saying it in some other interview, you know, you watch An Inconvenient Truth and you're just left with like, Mm. well, I don't even, you know, like, what am I supposed to do? (laughs) Like, it's so overwhelming, like, I can't possibly make a difference in this issue. Um, But when you drill down to very specific actions, like, you know, I'm gonna choose this shirt and not this shirt, and I'm just gonna buy one, Um, That's a powerful act and that act has ramifications and it's empowering to you, you know, as the consumer to do that and then feel like you're part of something in a very real, you know, fundamental way. And it's also removing dissonance from your life because you may say like, I support these ideas, but then when your actions are at odds with that, uh, even on an unconscious level, because you're not thinking about it, I think that creates like, residue that doesn't feel good, right? And the more you can bridge that gap and create alignment there, like you just feel better. That's so powerful
1: because you always, it's so powerful because you always ask the question, well, what will my one little choice do? Like, will it really affect, but you're kind of turning that over and saying, what would it maybe do for your life? Like what would, yes, the system might get a bump, but how much more are you going to begin to lean into Mm -hmm. that's a that's a power that's a really powerful change and i think if there's anything that's if there's any trick being pulled certainly on my generation right now is a very passive invitation to care about issues on a macro level and ignore their impacts in our day-to-day life and it's a very business driven set of storytelling that that says yes 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 care create an identity around caring but don't go so far as to actually adjust your choices to line up to that belief and to me when you line those two things up there isn't there is something ignites
0: something really mm. powerful happens cool i want to talk about cotton <laughs> great cotton is like this was news to me like of course i know like oh yeah lots of clothes are made out of cotton but actually you know cotton is really at the center of you know so much of the garment industry, I think I'd written it down, like half half of the total fiber used for clothing comes from cotton, right? <laughs> and right now, 90% of that cotton is genetically engineered, BT cotton. And you have a whole sort of segment and you know, kind of primary person in the movie who's an organic cotton farmer in Texas. And we kind of hear a little bit about her story and that kind of segues the narrative a little bit into, um, this world of gmos and the health implications and all of that which is treacherous controversial territory right yeah i feel like you could have easily made this movie without kind of going there Hmm.
1: yeah i could have i know exactly what you're saying but at the same time it is such a dauntingly large part of the global fashion story and ironically and of interest to me it impacts people who are are some of the lowest um you know, some of the poorest workers in the supply chain are, are farmers, both, both here in this country and hugely around the world. We were, you know, with several um, parts of the story in India with cotton farmers there. Um, and same thing in Texas with mm-hmm. um, the, the woman that you mentioned. And yeah, it is. I mean, I think to me the, the, the idea that I was trying to open up was just this thought for people that uh, wherever you fall, on on this stuff. A lot of people are are taking a, a greater amount of energy to think about organic things going into their bodies and they're starting to care about those chemicals, those pesticides, they're starting to realize that has a real impact. Let's just put aside for a second the communities in which it's grown, but it's actually having an impact on my health. And yet we wrap ourselves in these pieces of fabric that are some of the most chemically intensive not just in the dyeing manufacturing process, which is also an issue, but to your point, in the cotton fields, I mean, we're talking about huge levels of, of chemicals, and, mm-hmm. and that to me was sort of an aha moment. It was like, wow, I, I think about the food all the time. It's really, you know, it's easy to talk about an organic apple but I sleep on cotton sheets and I, you know, all throughout my day I'm interacting with this thing. And then on top of and that. skin being your largest organ. It's right? the largest organ in your body. And, and I think if there's any area that, that science is going to excel, I mean, I think this stuff is just gonna we're, I think we're gonna be amazed at what's coming into our skin through our fabric. There's been remarkably little uh, work done on mm-hmm. what's coming in from from the clothing aspect
0: yeah it's a complete blind spot uh and of course this is anecdotal but you know this this woman this texas farmer is talking about how i mean she's sitting on i don't know how many thousands I mean, like she had a huge farm right like a three million acres or something like that huge yeah. um her husband passed away from a brain tumor at age 47 or he mm-hmm. lived to 50 he was mm-hmm. he contracted at age 47 and she tells this heart-wrenching story of of going to Lubbock, which is basically the nearest town to where she is, right, mm-hmm. to get treatment for him. And there's a like a whole sort of center there around uh, cancer, and the doctors there are saying, yeah, we're, we're treating this all the time. This is the most cotton-intensive, you know, part of the nation, right? Yeah. yeah. And so you're 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 led to draw this conclusion of you know this relationship between. Um, the BT cotton and perhaps you know the, the it's so it's it, there's so much pesticide that comes with that that it's it's beyond just the genetic engineering of the corn itself. It's all the pesticide that go with it and the health implications on, on well, these farmers.
1: Yeah, exactly, and that's that's exactly the way I wanted to position it. You know, um, however you want to think about the the genetically altered um, organism, you know, let's put that aside and let's just look at the amount of chemicals and it's and it's just astronomical. And when you think about the farmers. We think about, you know, in India, we think a lot about the Green Revolution and this whole GMO, uh, you know, thing that was pushed. And we don't think about cotton, but cotton's a huge, huge, huge part of that story. And I spent time in all different parts of the country witnessing uh, farmers who had had no training on how to how to apply these chemicals, and you're just seeing the stuff and you see in the film, being sprayed open, no mask, running into waterways. I mean, I'm not even having to go look for it. it's just it's everywhere. And then you're talking to local doctors, you're talking you know about disease, you're talking you're talking about all these issues that. Um, have just been profoundly unasked questions um, and and at the other end of it that that they are being marketed by the largest seed company in the world um, with a base here in our country. Uh, to me, you know, it, it asks these profoundly moral questions. You know, this stuff was in, introduced into the market in India. It had a spike, it it raised yields, it did what it promised, and then it flattened out and then it went down. And so you saw this huge uh, backlash. I mean, these people are living on zero margin. They're, you know, they're, and here they are taking in all these expensive inputs to get this higher yield. And then when it begins to fail what it was going to do, you, you see just tragic implications. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, not the least of which is indentured servitude to Monsanto. And what you kind of demonstrate in the movie is how that contributes to suicide rates in India, right? Like all these farmers are committing suicide. Like one, I think you said one every 30 seconds? Yeah, more than
1: 250,000. That number keeps going up um, in the last 15 years. I mean, it's it's the largest recorded wave of suicides in history coming out of this one area where they're they are farmers that this is what they're growing and they the manner they kill themselves is very um specific they they drink a bottle of the pesticide and mm-hmm. um the roundup
0: or yeah that the, that they yeah the stuff that they spray on it and and what leads to this so the 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 promise is increased yields and increased pe- you know pestilent resistance right so it flattens out and then what they're still forced to you know they still have to buy their seeds from monsanto where where does it all go where does it fail for the farmer
1: well i mean where it fails for the first part is just on the the model being introduced um you know these people are not used to buying seeds and they're not certainly if they're buying seeds they're not used to buying seeds at that level monsanto comes in because they've altered something in the gene you know they own they own the seed uh, people are familiar with that so these folks these farmers have to buy the seeds every single year and they are astronomically more expensive than the, what they've had to you know buy before and you can't everyone knows with Monsanto you can't hold seeds aside you mm-hmm. can't you can't do the thing that the earth provided the poorest people as the most fundamental you know protection of what it means to be a human being farming is a very interesting way in which the poorest of the poor get a chance to eat and to work you know it's a very interesting thing and it's it's taken that model and it's introduced a very uh western capitalist business exchange where Mm -hmm. these people take on huge amounts of debt to get these inputs and when the yields don't come back to be what they're advertised to be um, there's catastrophic impacts not to mention as i said the the huge huge questions about this waste and and this these chemical offshoots and all of these things that are affecting these communities
0: do you have data on the environmental you know footprint of all of this i mean i think you say in the movie that it's second only to the oil industry in terms of you know this sort of toxic byproduct of, of this business, but did you get into the data of it at all?
1: We did. I mean, it's, there's a lot of different ways to break those numbers down. Um, from a polluting freshwater standpoint, I think it's, uh, number one or number two. I mean, from a, you know, carbon emission standpoint, it's absolutely huge, partly because of the transportation costs, but also partly because of just the crude manufacturing process. Um, I mean, you sort of, you sort of go down the list of every, measure of both natural resources and environmental impact and and however you factor it this this ranks really 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 high which is which is interesting because it is still, one of those issues and one of those industries that doesn't show up when most people think about climate change or pollution or right. resource scarcity um you know in paris there, there wasn't a big conversation about clothing there wasn't it just it somehow
0: kind of sits just under the radar it's very similar to Cowspiracy in that regard you know i think that documentary did a great job of of you know very similarly you know pulling the covers on on <clears throat> you know, the animal agriculture business and revealing certain truths that we never really thought about, right? And yeah. and you're kind of doing the same. Tonally, your movie's very different, but I'm interested in, you know, this journey of really pulling covers on what is essentially, what is it, like a $3 trillion mm-hmm. a year mm-hmm. business. What, you know, w- what has the reception been in the fashion industry?
1: It's been I mean it's been amazing I think you know for an independently produced film uh the the response and you know it's it's been bigger and more impactful and more meaningful than than Mm -hmm. any of us expected truthfully um we started uh about a year ago we took the film to Cannes, and we took it um from there to it was interesting it got noticed by some people in the fashion industry who became sort of champions for it so we had some very
0: odd allies we had some people well it's it's super interesting when i was kind of reading some of the press like you know there's pictures of you with the fabulosi you know Mm -hmm. like it's you i mean early on uh is it lily firth What's her name? Livia Firth. Livia. Uh-huh. Livia Firth came uh-huh. on board, right? Was she a uh-huh. producer on the movie uh-huh. with you? She was, yeah. Right. So, you know, she's an advocate in this, you know, in this sphere, but also happens to be married to, you know, a movie a movie star and a movie star, not just a movie star, Colin Firth, but, but a collaborator of, with Tom Ford, right? Y- yeah. One of the most powerful and iconic people in fashion so how does that work like it was really yeah it was really interesting
1: and Livia I have Livia to think for a lot of this I mean I think we knew from the beginning like a lot of you know independent documentaries we didn't have a marketing budget or um, you know Netflix picked the film up and took it out to 190 countries but we had to do the work of actually making this thing show up on the radar and that meant we had to get influential people to help this thing get noticed and Livia uh, has navigated that world for a number of years between fashion and activism, and so mm-hmm. she, she kind of had a way of of positioning it. Almost, I mean, it was it was really masterful. I mean, we had folks like Anna Wintour and Tom Ford and all these people coming to our premiere events, and I don't know if they, I don't know how much they knew <laughs> what <laughs> they were coming into, uh-huh. <laughs> but but they were really kind, and um, y- you know, I think it was Tom that gave a really. Uh, a very disturbed quote to to Vogue after our premiere in London. I mean, these were people that were they they really were shaken and they really mm. weren't callous. And I had conversations with with a lot of these folks, not just on that side of it, but also in some of these major companies and some of these people people saying either publicly or privately, um, this is this isn't okay, you know? And I and I hoped, you know, I, I wanted the film to be strong enough Uh, to do justice to what we're talking about but I also wanted it to be open enough you know you mentioned the tone like I I made it so that there could be a conversation there's actually a lot of things in the film that I'm asking questions I'm not giving firm answers I'm not coming to the table with the arrogance of I know how to fix a three trillion dollar industry I'm just saying I think it's time to open up the conversation to be honest about what we're actually dealing with here mm-hmm. and I have been shocked and surprised um, by how many collaborators, collaborators I've had in that process and people who I think have wanted to have a new conversation about fashion and the film has given them uh, a common place to start, so companies will do screenings, like really, really big companies with really big steps. and it will act as a neutral starting point for a dialogue. Or mm-hmm. you know, the UN has done like it's been an interesting thing to see it kind of
0: roll out. Right, up. there's that amazing sequence in the movie where Ms. Firth kind of calls out that representative from H H&M and M, and just she just slams her basically, <laughs> right? Like, walk us through that.
1: Yeah, it was uh the Copenhagen Fashion Summit. Uh and it was a, you know, world gathering of major brands and NGOs and people that were working on um, you know, cleaning up the fashion industry. And Livia Firth, one of our producers, uh was on a panel with um the head of sustainability for H&M at the time. And they were having a conversation about living wage and it was, you know, it was just one of those uh, sort of laughable conversations where uh, laughable and, and deeply sad conversations where you have the corporate speak, the greenwashing, you, you just sort of have this like, yes, of course, we're trying to get everyone paid living wage. And you have Livia just putting her foot down and saying, no, like it's not okay. Like it's not okay that we just had a factory fall down and take the lives of these people followed by another fire followed by it's not okay that there's proven data that these people can't live in their, in their circumstances. all these things and it was ju- it was really it was powerful because it was i think you don't get many times in life where the corporate perspective it, it which is sort of reminiscent of a very political we see it in campaign season sometimes where it's like i'm going to say a lot and say nothing right. <laughs> right, right and you have someone sitting next to her who is the ultimate truth teller saying no, this isn't okay, and you have this room kind of erupting and applauding and you know cheering back and forth, and the H and M team is cheering for her, and then you know, it's, Ooh, wow, were you there? You were I was there, in were the there. audience, and uh-huh. it was uh, it was captivating, and I and I really, I mean, there was so much more to that that I wish could have. I mean, it was it was really powerful because you are what I think Olivia is demanding in that conversation, and what we're demanding in the film is to say, no matter how complex economically. Or, or otherwise these issues can parade as they are fundamentally moral at the end of the day because they're about human beings. Mm-hmm. And that sort of ushers in a clarity to the conversation that the, the corporate side of it is very uncomfortable having.
0: Right, and H&M refused to grant you an interview uh, for the movie and there really aren't any, you know, talking heads from the major brands, you know, Gap or whatever, these huge companies. Um, and I think you know it made me think about your approach and you know the choices that you've made about how to communicate this message uh, and I think i i I saw you say or or read somewhere that you didn't want to do gotcha interviews like hmm. you didn't want to just try to you know trick H&M into granting you an interview and then box them into a corner with a question they weren't expecting yeah. like you yeah. were very transparent like hey H&M I want to interview you this is what my movies about like you told them up front. you were very honest and, and clear about that. And they said no, thank you. I don't know how long they thought about it. <laughs> but, but, uh, you know why didn't you, you know, go the cowspiracy route and say, "Oh, I'm just making a movie about fashion" and then, you know, get that person in the room and and try to ask them that hard question and watch them squirm.
1: Yeah, I think it was because I I wanted I wanted it to be able to play out the way it has where this could be a constructive criticism. I mean, there's no doubt this is a criticism. I am I am making something that's really very critical of of a set of ideas and a and a system. At the same time, I want it to be constructive and I don't want to burn a bridge, you know, in the process of telling the story that it can't be useful once we have the story out there. And I think the other part of me feels like if we if we keep if we keep doing that thing where we demonize the the company specifically or the the person or the. Um, it alleviates all of us with the responsibility that we have. And I think I was more interested in saying, let's critique the system. So you see brands in the film and we, we show logos and their stuff, but there's so much that we chose not to put in the cut. I, there's so much I had and have of storylines that are just, I mean, some of these corporations are just as bad, if not horrifically worse than you think they are. But I just sort of felt like that's, we, we sort of know that. And the thing that maybe we haven't considered before is what kind of role do we play and what's the system coalesce to create together? Not just the individual demonizing of, of one, one party.
0: It's a tall ask, though, when you say to the consumer, like, listen, you need to ignore all these messages that you're being bombarded with everywhere you go every single day. I mean, your movie is littered with, you know, what it looks like to walk through Times Square. And I think there's footage. It must be Tokyo, where mm-hmm. you just see these, you know, dynamic, you know, built. They're not billboards. They're moving images, you know, that, as tall as skyscrapers of, you know, beautiful people appearing to be loved, wearing fabulous clothes. And it's hypnotic. You know, it's hypnotic. And so it's very difficult to, you know, take a step outside of that propaganda machine, for lack of a better word. I mean, it really is propaganda. They're selling you an idea that isn't really the truth that you can see in your movie when you juxtapose it up against, you know, the factory conditions of the people that are actually producing this concept. You know, it's an idea more than it is the shirt.
1: And I think, honestly, this stuff wouldn't... uh be as upsetting as it is to me if, if we were doing this damage on one side of the equation to people and to the environment, uh, if, if those of us on this end of the equation were, were happy if we were actually buying into a story that was making us we're more whole, less happy it's this double irony i mean it's that sense that there's a professor named tim castor in the film and he talks about you know the the myths and the the storylines of advertising and it is you're exactly right it's promising you something that it fundamentally is not going to fulfill so it is setting people up to live in a cycle of emptiness that is um just as profound or
0: dangerous as as some of these impacts that we're calling out mm-hmm. and so how do we you know how how do we like get ourselves together to begin to ignore that
1: well i think part of it is just beginning to be aware that you're being sold to with hundreds of billions of dollars every single day and you are targeted in a way that would defy your imagination everything about your choices and your beliefs and opinions and this the construct of who you are is a target on someone's uh, balance sheet and they are aggressively trying to make you believe you need to buy more things than you did last month. That's just true. So for me, that changed just, just beginning to think along those lines. It's like, I mean, your matrix comment, you're seeing times square in a different way when you're thinking along those lines. But I also think there's a, there's a void of meaning in a lot of people's lives. And I, I met, you know, in the film, we have those, um, at the shopping hall girls on youtube and they they 're you know buying all right. that. right oh, it 's so amazing <laughs> but it 's like you you think about there 's been this amazing um, there 's an annual event now called Fashion Revolution Day, uh, which is huge advocacy and awareness and activism around these issues and one of the things they did this year is they reached out to to some of those um, girls and they showed them the film and they had a conversation. And then um, they started creating some videos called uh Alternatives," where they were going to, you know, use clothing stores, and they were telling the story, and they were going overseas to these factories. And what struck me when I watched those videos is it was like here's this sense of um, creativity and passion and energy that these these people have, and all it took was redirecting that, hmm. was was inviting that to a, a deeper sense of meaning. So if you're a person that's walking around living life, just you know just at the level that that advertising storyline is, is selling you, I think you're missing out. I think they're promising you something that would be far better served, invested into something meaningful. And there's something about meaning in my life. Meaning has a way of crowding out meaninglessness. And meaninglessness often, what goes with that sometimes is mindless consumption uh, and some of these things. That's, an,
0: that's amazingly well put. Wow. That's beautiful. Um, so actually these very same vlogger girls or a different set of like, YouTube yeah, some of the girls. very same. Yeah. some yeah, of the very same. That's crazy. So in the movie, yeah, you have clips from YouTube of the, you know, like those YouTube channels, teenage girls are shopping. Oh, here's my big haul. Here's what I got. Like, look at all this stuff I got for a hundred dollars or whatever. And they're going through it. And then you look at the counter. It's like four and a half million views. You know, it's amazing how powerful that well,
1: is. Well, and it's like, you know, honestly, Rich, you, you, um, you've talked about this before and it's that concept of like, if you're, if you're trying to invite change in people, it's like the own changes that have actually made our lives, uh, different at any point have not been by saying, here's this bad thing you're doing. Stop doing that bad thing. They've been to say, how can we replace that habit with this other habit? I think it's really dangerous to tell people just buy less stuff, like just buy less clothes. Don't be as materialistic. Don't, don't listen to it. You know, but when you begin to say there's a, bigger story happening in the world. Like there's something more engaging taking place than you've been led to believe. And when people get a glimpse of that, this other thing seems dim and faded and old fashioned.
0: Right, it just falls away as opposed to, instead of focusing on removing the thing that's bad, focusing on taking the next right or better action. And by virtue of creating a habit around that and what that gives you, the bad thing just sort of seems suddenly not appealing. I think that's I think it's yeah. very true. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Well, it must have been cool to to go to Cannes like as a young filmmaker incredible. like set your second movie. Yeah, was it was it your inc- second movie. Yeah, so yeah, how did yeah. that happen?
1: Uh it was amazing. I mean, we we basically began to look at the release plan and look at how to position the film, uh, you know, it was right out it was we were you always look at festivals as like when are you going to finish the film and then when do you want the release to happen and it just happened to be in the perfect time and it was it was so cool because Livia and Colin were there, and the, you know they got together a bunch of their friends who are super not normal friends <laughs> <laughs> you know. if i 'm being honest there was a lot of those moments, yeah, and they're cool i mean there's i 'll never forget some of those memories, and it wasn't lost on me I mean my producer and I both and he he you know, he's been on this path with me for several years now, and we both have had several moments this last year where you just look around, you just have to pause and say, mm-hmm. "How you know this is extraordinary?" What's yeah, it's
0: crazy. I mean, and the movie came. I mean, how long has the process been from idea to completion? It was about a two-year process um, as a whole, and
1: then um, you know we're now several several months now into the release. Um, right. And it just kind of keeps growing. I mean, it's hit all these markets around the world, so we'll go do special press when it's gonna hit a certain, it'll still do theatrical openings in a city or some, a country or uh, festival. It kind of just, it has this life. It, it's, and it's fun now because it, it's like, releasing a film is like having a little baby and it needs everything for a while. And uh, now it kind of feels like it's, it's out in the world. doing something. It's in the world, something. it's doing
0: its own thing without, yeah, yeah, yeah. So what is, I mean, what's your background? I mean, did you always wanna be a filmmaker? I did. I uh,
1: I grew up just outside of Atlanta and I was, I, I'm I'm trying to make it not sound as cliche as it is. I mean, I was horrible, you know, not, not a good student in school. Uh, there weren't like several things to choose between. I picked up a camera really young, I think fourth grade and took it out and made a short film with my friend that was a skateboarder. I called it skateboarding. Uh Uh (laughs) And I loved it. I, I, I remember watching ET for the first time, sitting on the end of my bed, cry my eyes out at the end. And I, I just had these, these moments where I felt like something in this, it felt like wizardry to me. How could I feel so much through someone else's eyes. Like how could I it, it felt otherworldly to me. And I didn't have anyone in my life that was doing it. You know, I wasn't we weren't in Los Angeles and mm-hmm. I yeah, at the end of high school I I moved out uh to Los Angeles and went to film school, studied cinematography and and really that was the first time that I felt good at something. I felt like it made sense. Like stories have always been the thing to me that they they just they just click in a way that nothing else in the world intrinsically clicks to me Mm
0: -hmm. and did you meet your producing partner in film
1: school um i actually i didn't he and i grew up very close to each other just outside of atlanta but we didn't have much interaction growing up i knew who he was uh he went down to florida state to study journalism and then he moved to los angeles and i was actually um i'd written a script for a short film that got financed and i needed a producer and Mm -hmm. i i knew him just because i remembered who he was and we Sat down and had dinner one night, and I asked him to quit his job at a post house and do that film, <laughs> and it kind
0: of led uh, us on this thing. Yeah, that's amazing.
1: So he's, it, so he's extraordinary. So you made
0: that short film, and then you made the documentary. We about made Lost. so we
1: made that short film, and it was a wild film because you know we we filmed with with children and live animals, and um, we were in the Denali Peaks in Alaska. It was this real oh, wow. trial by fire. It was very intense. Film so like high production value
0: short film, not yeah. like, like in the basement short film.
1: <laughs> yeah, and 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 stressful. The process was stressful, and in that process, I you just begin, you just see who someone is, and I I just clicked with him. He just he just brings to the table fundamentally the things that I don't and it just works together. So when we finished that film, we created a a little creative company together, just the two of us, um called Untold and and really just invented that company with no other idea or business model than we just want to keep making stuff together. Like it, it this this is working and um yeah the first feature that we did was was that uh first documentary
0: right and did that go on the festival circuit or what was it really
1: didn't that was that was a very small film i mean it was very personal and therapeutic and life-changing it got picked up by a distribution partner and put out there uh but it we didn't do a whole lot with it partly because we jumped right onto the true cost like it was the day we locked that cut and turned it into our distributor, you know the the next day i I picked up this newspaper, so it it's a small film it's out there in the world, but it's right.
0: it's an amazing story though, to you know hear you talk about just literally having an idea based on you know reading an article and being emotionally impacted by you know the the, the tragedy in Bangladesh, fast forwarding to you know not only being on the red carpet it can but the impact that you know this movie has had in the world, um, you know, as a creative person, that must be incredibly gratifying. But beyond that, you know, I want to get into a little bit about, you know, the impact that the movie has had. Like, is there any, have you seen change? I mean, I think you just went, didn't you speak at the UN? Mm-hmm. Or something yeah, like, some tell things, me yeah. about that.
1: Yeah, we've done, um, there's a group called Fashion for Development with UN that we were um, with in New York that they, they're kind of, again, they're on the very, High end, you know the top models, the top designers end of the spectrum, trying to push and promote change. Um, yeah, there's been a lot. It's, it's it's really interesting when I think about that question because I think if I'm if I'm being honest with you, I feel and I don't know if this is just part of the creative process or, or what it is, but I feel sitting here today disappointed that there hasn't been more profound change. Um, I could talk about all the things that are being done and all the, and I think it's hard to measure some of these ideas being put into you know motion. I think there's a a level of awareness. There's certainly, I mean, the film's been screened in fashion schools around the world. It's been there's also I could just go down the list of the ways it's being used, and I'm proud of that. So I'm not trying to undermine that. At the end of the day, the the cynic in me, and at the same time the optimist in me says, I think the film ultimately leads to, um, a very dangerous intersection. And I think you alluded to it earlier where some of the questions I naively began to ask in this film about fashion have their roots in business and economics and the way that we're organizing the world. And I think while we're pushing and promoting all sorts of reform and there's I'm not, again, I'm not undermining that. There's people that are working in these supply chains. There's NGOs. There's people that have locked arms. with. There's people that are undercover right now. There's people that are doing profound work to say, let the top come down, but we're going to like just fight to get people organized in these countries to get in you know, the bar raised. But they are just meeting unbelievable resistance because this is a system that's still making An absolute fortune and it doesn't bother or it doesn't show up on the radar for most people and I think when you're making this film truthfully and again this is maybe naively you think this is so scandalous what's taking place this is so this has disrupted my life in such a significant way that I just need to put it out there to Mm -hmm. the world and I think it's been an interesting challenging evolving series of months for me to begin to look towards what's next and what I'm going to use the rest of my life for to say, okay, awareness and storytelling and, and, you know, so powerful. And then also like, how can I not just stop there? Like, how can we begin as storytellers to, to do these things and also Really, not fall short of rethinking some of these deeply held beliefs and assumptions and attacking them and fighting them and staying on them because
0: they do take time Mm -hmm. so I'm kind of in the middle of that right now right yeah it's interesting because you know I appreciate your honesty about the disappointment you know but when you look at like there's a scene at the end of the movie where you show this footage from black friday Mm. and people are just losing their shit and just going absolutely bananas i mean it's chaos right Mm. at like probably six in the morning or seven (laughs) in the morning when the doors to whatever department store that is you know open up and this is what you're dealing with Mm. like these people like are about as far away from the message of the true cost Mm. as anyone is going to be how are we going to get how are you going to be able to you know penetrate their consciousness and get those people who are just maniacally shopping out of their minds to, you know, think differently about this. Meanwhile, the movie tips your hand or, you know, culture's hand to this industry and says loud and clear, like, you're under threat. So what Mm -hmm. are they going to do? Well, they're going to marshal all their, you know, massive resources to protect the base Mm -hmm. and ensure that, you know, they're taking actions to maintain the status quo right
1: yeah no I think that's incredibly true and I think we've felt some of the backlash from that we felt some of these major conventions and conferences about ethical sustainable. you know it's like this year even more than last year uh you know they're they're totally sponsored by you know one company and it you know there's such a there's a really driving force I don't think the fashion industry is clueless at all that this is that this is a oh, conversation yeah but I think you know at the end of the day and I don't know I I, I mean I'm I'm more interested in your thoughts on this than mine but you said the word consciousness. I think that's that's what I came to in this whole story. I came to beyond political change and pressures and storytelling and all these things. Like at the end of the day, I think what we're all in here is this this situation where we have to see a significant increase in human consciousness and, and rather quickly because the stakes really are high. And that's not me. That's just true. So how do you invite people into the kind of change or the, the, the kind of life that, that I believe would be actually more meaningful and better for them without it being this, you know what I'm saying? Like, I think that issue of consciousness and that's, that's, that permeates your work and it's, it's, it's like, it's the thing of like, there's something deeper going on here. And when you see those people rushing into that store on Black Friday, that hits you. You're like, this is beyond just a business model. This is actually,
0: this is about consciousness hmm yeah i don't even know how to you know respond to that i mean it's it's so clear that it's about consciousness um and the method for you know tapping into you know tapping into that and connecting with people in a in a manner in which you can you know get through to them and actually shift that awareness is you know obviously the ultimate question right but there's nothing more powerful than the moving image hmm. you know what i mean much more powerful than a podcast or you know getting up and, and talking. And I think it you know, for me, it makes me think a lot about effective ways of communicating mm. right What is the best way to get through to somebody? And you know everybody we were talking about this before the podcast, like everybody has their own method for every activist has their own voice and their own, Method, you know, and I've said this before but you know, you have animal rights activists who are screaming and yelling and and you know Doing things in a certain way. That's not my style of communication. I have a very different style Um, but I think I think you have to um, I think you have to demonstrate through your words and your work and your actions and your daily life uh, a way of living that like you said, uh, is raising your daily experience, mm. the quality of your daily experience. But you have to express that in a way that's not only accessible and welcoming, but also for lack of a better word, like cool, you have mm. to use the tools that Madison is Ave- Avenue is mm-hmm. using to convince you to go buy fast fashion, take, you know, a tip from that, you know, that rule book mm. and use it for, uh, you know, the purposes of raising consciousness right instead of attacking mm. it like well what are they doing what they're doing is working right mm. so mm. let's let's try some of that but do it in a constructive way
1: i think that's profound and i think what I, I think what i'm experiencing right now is what you just said like i i like you have found a style you know you have found a voice and i think what i'm doing in this film as a person you know aside from the film is i think i'm trying to hone in on that style and i'm trying to and and walking away from the film, I feel like we hit we hit a nerve. We 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 did something that that's been powerful. And the the creative part of me just wants to ruthlessly keep getting better at that.
0: Mm-hmm. How else has it impacted your life personally, other than making you think you know more deeply about your consumer choices?
1: Yeah, I think it's. I'm, yeah, I mean, on the very practical level, it's, it's changed the way we we. Buy clothes and, and the conversations we're having with our kids and and all that I think on on a broader level from that though it has it has raised the bar of the profound opportunity that that my life sits in and I think to spend time with so many people in different parts of the world that don't have um, access to the same not just resources just actual opportunity, you come back to your life here. And it's, it's, it's not a sense of guilt. I don't, I don't feel that I feel every day waking up though, a heightened awareness to the fact that I'm in a position globally speaking of enormous influence. And the question of how to use that influence, you know, five years ago, two years ago, three years ago would have been like, I want to use that to build a big career. I want to use that to. And I still have every bit of that in me, like everyone, but There is this other voice now that sort of always is speaking up, remembering and reminding me that I have the potential to actually use these these tools and these abilities that I have to do something profound. And I don't think I felt that before making this film. I don't think, I, I hadn't traveled internationally to the extent that we did, and I just hadn't seen the stakes. I hadn't seen what was actually uh, playing out and and how relatively my life fit into that equation. And I'm still wrestling with that. Truthfully, I still, there's still days where I want to you know, quit what we're doing and go hand out food. You know, it's like, I'm still in that really uncomfortable place, but there's something wonderful about it being um, a bit more uncomfortable now.
0: Yeah. You can't go backwards. Right. And yet you have to acknowledge that you live in the world. You know, it's like, I don't know where these microphones were made. And here's an iPhone Mm -hmm. and I fly on airplanes and I drive a car and all these sorts of things that just come part and parcel with living in, you know, Mm -hmm. modern Western society. And I'm sure if you trace back the modes of production of any number of things that I see sitting on this table here, you're going to go on a similar journey, right? Mm. That, that, you, that you went on with mm. with garments. So I don't think it's about being perfect. I think it's about being trying to be better. You know? Absolutely. And if that's incremental, or if that's, you know, a big leap for you, uh, it's more a matter of signing up for that and going on that journey.
1: Yeah, it's incredibly, tr- it's incredibly true, and that's how it's played out in my life. It has been a gateway, and it has opened me up to all these other ideas. I mean, it's, it, I, I began asking questions about food. I began to ask questions about— It's like I, I began to move in a direction that um, I hope continues and one that I, I, I wasn't on
0: before this. Mm-hmm. So what is the, pro- the primary takeaway that you want the audience to you know, gather from the experience of watching the movie? I mean, I think that, that we're all living at a really
1: special moment in history, and I think th- we have the ability to look at the impact we're having on the world, and we have the ability to be a part of the kind of world we want to have or or to be a part of the destruction that we say we're against, and something as small as clothes, something as simple as a t-shirt that act actually does add up to have a profound impact and the film is just my invitation to just consider the possibility that you're far more than a consumer that you're mm. far more than someone that just walks down the aisle that
0: you actually vote you choose and that you can be a part of something bigger what do you say to you know the average person who maybe is listening who just you know like they're just they're working a job they got kids like you and I do Uh, you know, maybe they're not making that much money. And it's like, look, man, you know, my kids go through clothes like crazy. And, you know, I can't afford to, you know, go to wherever, you know, boutique shop. And, you know, how am I supposed to make this function?
1: Yeah. Well, and I relate to that. I mean, I, I have four kids. They're all young. They grew You're out of way clothes. way young to have four kids. <laughs> and I make documentaries. So I, you know, I'm in a very practical. Highly lucrative. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Someone lied to me about, right? No. Um, no, this is very practical stuff. And I, the last thing I'd want to feel, uh, is that this is just, you know, I, I, you know, idealistically, you know, above people's everyday experience. I think this stuff's really difficult every day. And I think it's it's for me a matter of, when it comes to clothing in particular, um, rethinking the way that you, you interact with clothes more than being perfect on every single item coming from a boutique. So I'm not perfect. Like our kids wear clothes and they wear out of them and we're buying as much as we can secondhand, which is getting easier and easier Profoundly for kids. There's mm-hmm. even sites now where you can buy and you can send back.
0: And oh, can, there is. It's really cool. Like what, exchanges. What are, the, what are some of the sites? Or maybe you can send them to me and I can put them in the show notes. I'll
1: send you because there's actually just a new one that I saw uh, this week that I think looks like the best one yet. But uh, we've been we've been experimenting with some different ones. So there's there's very practical things, but but also I think just um, you know what you said of just not the aim not being on perfection. It just being on, you know, is my is my son wearing something that my daughter can wear that I might have handed back in, you know? Is mm-hmm. is my, could we? How much do we need, you know? Could we actually? Um, and for me or for any adult, like, could I invest a little bit more into something that I'm going to have and hold on to, versus something that's going to keep me on that conveyor belt of cheap throwaway stuff? And and yeah, I, and and honestly, it doesn't have to be. Uh, I don't think it has to be a huge financial burden, and I'm saying that very practically. Like to me, it's been amount of, about lowering the amount of consumption a little bit to translate that that space financially and otherwise into making better choices. And like, let it be fun. Like my wife and I got into a thing where we would we'd start to look for things. We'd we'd go because it's like we would find and interact with all these great brands doing high seven. We couldn't afford them, mm-hmm. so we had to begin to find ways to you know make good choices but also make it work for us the stuff in the vintage
0: shops is cooler anyway it's awesome no <laughs> you know, it's incredible
1: yeah, and if yeah. you live in major cities and i didn't notice before we're making the film if you live in major cities the the increase in really cool secondhand clothing stores is is incredible and it's not a sacrifice to say that i buy stuff secondhand. it's like i actually um i i really love it i really love it so
0: how do you communicate to your kids about this kind of stuff
1: well, it's really funny. My kids, How old are they? the oldest is eight, and the youngest is uh, four. So uh, they're very young, and it's very interesting for them to understand like what I'm doing for work. And it was very interesting when I was making the film, um, you know, to come home and, and try to communicate to them, uh, you know, about the places I was going and who I was interacting with. Um, they still are constantly in a state of disappointment that I don't make, you know, the movies they see on billboards. They always ask, like, "Did you make Finding Dory, Dad?" And when I say no, there's just this genuine, like, "Why? Why not?" Deflation. Like, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, no, but I think we we're just trying to have a conversation with them that is just one that says, you know, everything we wear um, was. Touched by human hands that people made it so let's find out about it let's find out who made it let's look at the tag let's find out the country let's try you know I mean it's an amazing thing to just begin it's like a geography lesson for us and it's also when it's a you know a, a company that we really love it just opens up this conversation that I frankly you know never had growing up
0: right what was the biggest like sort of shocking thing that you discovered in the journey of making this movie that you didn't expect
1: I think the most, the most personally powerful thing, because, you know, the numbers are astronomical and they're, they're in the film and the, you know, you can, you can know this stuff on paper and you can look at the stats and the figures and I could just click down the list. But I think if I, if I'm being honest, for me, it was the experience of the time that we spent with Shima, the, the, the mother, um, garment worker, in DACA, um, whose story kind of unfolds in, in the midst of the film. And I think, I I just think there's something about seeing that level of poverty through the lens of working poor, people who are working more hours than I work in a week, people who are leaning in with every bit of their energy to create some kind of life for them and their children, and to see them robbed of some of the most basic human dignity and yet be some of the most resilient, powerful people. I didn't expect that. Like one of the reasons that Shima's in the film is Shima is the antidote to that sort of Western storytelling of like, here's the poor pitiful garment worker in the factory, the victim, the victim, That's probably what shocked me the most. Here's a person who has been born into the most inopportune place in the equation, a person who has lived through and is living through stuff that you and I don't even dream of, um, and yet is so—there's a bravery, a boldness— you know, she the work she's doing with the union. We even offered, as the film was coming out, to pull her out of that factory so she could be in a, a more comfortable place with another one of these companies, and she turned it down because she said, "No, I'm doing something there mm-hmm. that's really significant." That I, I don't know if, if it's just the personal nature or if it's the looking another human being in the eye or spending that amount of time, but that that sense of fight that sense of drive that sense of i think what it did for me is it made me feel like this isn't all an issue of rich westerners need to figure out and solve these problems it's like we actually need to begin to let the people that are affected most more into the dialogue because they have some really good ideas they have some and they're and they're willing to do the work to fight on behalf of their own fate. We don't have to do all that for them. We just have to stop boxing them out from being heard.
0: Yeah, that was really powerful. I mean, it it isn't a victim narrative. Like, she's, you know, very empowered, and and when you see the lengths to which, you know, she's willing to sacrifice for a better life for her child and the decisions that she's making and the organizational activities and all of that, it's like, you know, let's, let's create some structure around people like her to allow you know improvement to you know take root and and grow,
1: absolutely yeah
0: amazing. Um, all right, so if people are uh, wanting to learn more, <clears throat> you know about these issues, of course watch the movie and I got a few more things I want to say about that. But you know what are some of the organizations that are out there? I mean you highlight certain you know mm-hmm. activists throughout the movie. But, you know, who are some of the people that are, you know, going to bat to try to make change in this world?
1: Yeah, there's 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 so many of them. Um, We kind of put together a few different resources on our site that is really just connecting people based on their area of interest. So, you know, someone might watch this and be really, you know, might be the chemical thing. And, you know, them connecting to to Greenpeace and their work with Detox and that campaign. Um, So there's different offshoots, you know, there's a lot of, this is a huge topic. I think Fashion Revolution Day, to me, continues to stand as one of the most powerful voices, sort of connecting the dots between a lot of the different activities. And they've sort of encapsulated some of the most powerful campaigners, into a forum that really gives them voice um, so I think if people look at Fashion Revolution day uh, there's a there's an extraordinary amount of information of facts and you know data but also entry points for for activism
0: on the legislative front is there any activity at all on the hill that is you know, percolating around this idea of combating the self-policing, you know, nature of this business?
1: It's so hard. Uh, There's not currently there was uh, there was some very good legislation uh, several years back that was um, it had unbelievable resonance with the American population. I think it was like uh, upwards of 70. I think it was high 70s of approval for just some basic, uh, you know, simple changes like we've been discussing. Uh, and, it, and it was looking at, and this is the area that I think that we need to look at it on, is the area of imports. So you can't really go around and police the world in the in the system that we have set up right now, but we're a huge customer. And so we have a huge opportunity, as a lot of developed countries do when things come in, to have a whole different way of evaluating. And, and we, we really do get to set those rules. And the market, if you believe in market forces, then great. Believe in the fact that they respond to us, creating you know change there, so that's what the legislation was. It was really hopeful. There's a bunch of uh, very um, well-known politicians now, especially that were that were behind it, and it it was really lobbied to death. And I think um, I and a lot of people want to see that brought back in a huge way. It's it's as difficult as it sounds, but again, the approval from people was unbelievably high cross-polled against different types of Mm -hmm.
0: you know different places all over the country so i'm hopeful to see that that reintroduced right well it's challenging when you know the the constituency isn't really the people and the constituency is the corporate interest that's at stake in whatever state you know whatever you know corporation resides in the state of that representative absolutely right but essentially what you're saying is if you can create restrictions on on imports such that you know any garment coming into the country, it has to be vetted and you know established that it was you know produced, manufactured, you know in accordance with certain human rights and environmental parameters. That would be a huge leap forward.
1: Right? Yeah, absolutely. It's, this is not a, a question of like we don't have the technical know-how. This is in the, it's like yes, this is complex, but if there is the impetus for this kind of change to happen. We have it in our tool set existing today to make these kinds of changes. And the other place that you can look, and there's been a lot of activism from uh, some of the folks uh, like John Hillary at War on One who's featured in the film um, around the TPP because a lot of the trade agreement, the reason activists are so involved in the conversation around trade agreements is, again, trade agreements are one of the best places to write the rules on how are we going to do business in a way that. protects the poor and takes care of the environment. And what we're seeing you know, in agreement after agreement after agreement is moving further towards business interest and further away from protecting the commons, protecting the poor. Um, so that's another point of entry if someone is, is really fired up about this stuff and, mm-hmm. and wants to look into it. Look into trade agreements and, and the advocacy that's going on around those because the, you will find these issues embedded in the middle of those.
0: Beautiful, man. Well, the movie is fantastic. You did a brilliant, amazing job. And like I said, it's it's not just about the fashion industry, the garment industry, fast fashion. It is about human rights, it's about the environment, it's about our relationship to the planet, and ultimately, it's about consciousness, right? Mm-hmm. Raising consciousness. And uh, I was very moved and impacted by it. I highly, strongly suggest everybody listening Check it out. Uh, I know it's on Netflix. Is that the best place for people that you want people to watch it?
1: Yeah, Netflix. I think is the most accessible place, um, but it's on
0: iTunes and all these. iTunes, other kinds Amazon. Of stuff, it's right? it's it's all over the wherever place. you consume your VOD content. And is that across the planet or?
1: Yeah, I, it is. I mean, those are hugely international. We're in. Yeah, basically every country, and if you're in a country that for some reason doesn't have one of those on-demand platforms, if um, you go to our site, truecostmovie.com, there's a player there that will let you uh, rent it for a couple bucks, and that really is uh, truly
0: global. You shouldn't have an issue streaming that. Right, that's cool. You probably make more money if they do that, right? someone does it better for you oh someone (laughs) did you did you sell the movie to
1: a distributor beyond or you we sold rights so Mm -hmm. we sold certain rights to netflix we sold certain rights we kind of it it got parceled out in different regions different areas and um yeah it's still it's still working i'm i'm hopeful that we'll i want to i want to recoup the investment that people put into it but Mm -hmm. i think i think we're on track to do that cool and so what are you
0: working on now like what's next
1: I'm working on a new film that um, is like the most exciting thing I've ever done and I'm dying to talk about it, but I can't talk about it too much. And I hate saying that. That's not because it's super important. It's just because from a journalistic standpoint, um, we're actually, it's very, very helpful in this new film that there be nothing out there about it. Um, but I'll just say it's a continuation of these ideas. It's into a new topic, a new arena, but same same approach. uh and I, we're eight weeks into production right now, and it I, is, I just love it.
0: That's awesome, man. Well, I can't wait to check it out, and hopefully, you'll come back here and tell us all about it when it's done, right? I'd love to. Awesome, man. Well, thank you so much. Uh, this was really fantastic. Super great to meet you, and uh, I just love the film and wish you success in everything that you're doing, man. We need more young people, young filmmakers out, um, you know, making movies about important issues and so i applaud Mm. you for that thanks thanks so much thanks for having me cool so if people want to uh connect with you um the best place best places online to do that would be uh true cost the the true cost
1: just truecostmovie.com and then uh yeah from there you'll see our social stuff and you'll see everything else going on
0: right right on man thanks a lot thanks again peace plants So that should give you more than a few things to think about, right? I thought That was awesome. Uh, Thank you, Andrew, for taking the time. That was just a fantastic conversation. And at the risk of sounding repetitive, everyone, please make a point of checking out The True Cost. It's streaming on Netflix or you can find it on iTunes, Amazon, and of course at truecostmovie.com. And definitely check out the episode page for show notes at richworld.com. I got tons of cool stuff there to delve deeper into all of these issues that surround the garment industry and globalized supply chain economics and fast fashion and etc. right? Uh, what else? Check out my YouTube channel and subscribe for vlogs and more, youtube.com forward slash Rich Roll. If you go to richroll.com, uh, we got all kinds of cool plant powered merch and swag. We got signed copies of Finding Ultra and Plant Power Way. We got plant power t-shirts. We got running tech tees. We got stickers. We got swag, good stuff. Uh, I wanna thank everybody who worked very hard to put on today's show. Jason Camiolo for audio engineering, production, all that good kind of techie stuff. Sean Patterson, he does all the graphics every week. Thanks, Sean. Chris Swan for production assistance. Chris also puts together all the show notes, which is a huge job. Thank you, Chris. And theme music by Analemma. Uh, Thanks for all the support, you guys. Final thought. Every day, each and every one of us, myself included, make all kinds of purchases that we really don't think twice about. It never occurs to us to consider what went into this or that. And I've learned uh, to do this with food, to really be more conscious about the choices that I'm making and be more informed about the chain of production. And that experience has spilled over into the choices that I make with Respect to many of my garment purchases, informed by people like Andrew and his movie, and you know Joshua Catcher, my conversations with him. But you know, I still have a long way to go on this journey and to really mature into this. And I suspect you do as well. As humans, of course, none of us—we're all very far from perfect in this regard. So this week, next time you find yourself at the store, at the mall, at Walmart or Target or H and M or the Gap or wherever, and you find yourself reflexively reaching out to grab that thing, take a beat and ask yourself a few questions. Where did this come from? How did it get here? What exactly went into this? I'm not saying you're gonna get answers, <laughs> but I think it's important to begin this process by taking the action of asking, you know, and maybe you buy this thing, maybe you don't, but either way, when you go home, maybe go online and see what you can find out about that item about that thing you bought or didn't buy. And either, I think one of two things will happen. Either you're gonna get answers and you're gonna find out information about the production, where it was produced, what the conditions are of you know the factory, where it was produced, et cetera, or you're not gonna be able to find anything. And that might even be more revealing and interesting. I think it's a worthwhile practice, something I'm gonna do this week and I hope you guys do as well. That's it. See you guys soon. Peace. Plants.